Welcome to Chat with the Designers for September 18, 2012. This is uh, your live online interactive weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters. Your hosts tonight are George, N2APB, and that would be me in Maryland, and Joe, N2CX, co-host located in New Jersey. We have one heck of a great show here lined up. And it's something that's near and dear to my heart very specifically. So I may be going through some of the material with uh, more uh, uh, subjective passion, perhaps, than some of you. But like, uh, like us all, we each have pet projects, pet, pet things we, that we like to do in Ham Radio World. One of mine happens to be old-time receivers, and especially the kind that I can build. And as it turns out, the subject for tonight is is regenerative receivers. And we're going to highlight maybe three or four really top designs for this, this particular category and go through them at a high level as we normally do over the next hour or so and touch on the basic operating principles, the pros, the cons, uh, point out some good designs, and then we're really going to zero in and analyze the desert rat Two from Paul Harden, NA5N, and his wife uh, Jan. Paul is a designer and homebrewer extraordinaire, as I as I said in our white page. And uh, Paul had taken some ideas in the earlier days of simple transistorized regenerative receivers, and he further made it better, uh, simpler, more stable and a better uh, performer in the line called the Desert Rat. And he came out with the Desert Rat 2. And there's even a Desert Rat 3. But in between the beginning and Desert Rat 3, there's also a thing called the Pipsqueak. And oh, we can go into all sorts of detail here, but we will in a little bit. We wanted to kind of get right into it because we have a lot to talk about tonight. And we really hope that you can chime in with some of uh, your experience with regenerative receivers and they're not the normal kind of receivers that we're used to having sitting on the bench necessarily because they were one of the earliest uh, types of receivers back in the 30s uh, the 20s and 30s actually and they kind of fell out of vogue after the great depression because the parts for a super hat and commercial versions of super heterodyne receivers became more easily obtained and, and cheaper in price, and people could buy them after the, after the Great Depression was over. So the simpler, less expensive regen receivers didn't really flourish, except in the kind of the low end of the hobby, the, the cheap and inexpensive ones. And frankly, not a lot of attention was paid to performance back then. So they kind of gained a bad name because nobody really took the time to really do good designs and create really performance radios that they could be once the superheads came around. So we're going to have some discussion about uh, the origin and the evolution of them. And we're going to touch on tube versions of it as well, because, of course, back in those days, tubes were, <laughs> tubes were in, transistors were not. And even today, and I'm looking around my shack, I have a couple of regen tube radios and a couple of transistorized ones as well. And there are some experts, in, noted experts, in our field in both of these camps. And we're going to kind of review some of those and touch on them. We've got a great set of uh, references for you, too. Joe, in his usual thorough manner, has been really scouring for some useful reference material and pumping it over to me, and I, I get the, the pictures and the material and the reference links all onto the whiteboard to provide us a really good reference for the topic, such that if the the, uh, the fancy ever strikes you to, to build a regen receiver, and, and we really hope it does, 
This will be a great a starting point reference for you to get your hands around some good material, to see the proven designs of others, to first replicate perhaps what they've done, and then ultimately to branch off on your own, do a little bit of experimentation. And the Chat with the Designers episode tonight will provide you with some good backgrounders, some good tips and techniques for you to get into uh, building your first regen perhaps. Or if you don't know what a regen is necessarily, this will be the place where you can kind of learn the basics of what it is, how it differs from the traditional uh, superheterodyne types of receivers that we are used to today. And frankly, there are pros and cons, but there's a lot of pros that you didn't think about. Um, there's a lot of advantages to using the superheterodyne, and, and we'll get into showing what that is uh, from a performance standpoint, mostly. Joe, did you want to help set the stage, perhaps, with a little bit of uh, insight and background? Certainly, George. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. There are there's some folks uh, in technology who, who've been real groundbreakers, who've uh, contributed by leaps and bounds more than others. And uh, the regen happens to be from one of those folks. There's a guy named um, uh, Armstrong, and at the moment his first name escapes me. Boy, I was just reading about him. When he was in college in 1914, he was thinking about how to make receivers uh, using vacuum tubes that had just become, the Audion tube had just become available. And he was trying to um, up the performance of receivers, and he came up with the idea of uh, using a vacuum tube, feeding its output back to its input to uh, get it to uh, regenerate, to re-amplify its uh, output. And he came up with the regenerative receiver. He also came up with the super regenerative receiver, which is a little different. Um, and the superheterodyne. So uh, this guy also came up with the idea for FM. So there are some real technologists. I believe he was a ham in the early days and um, worked in the signal core as well. But um, based on his original ideas, a lot of the uh, a lot of the modern receiver techniques have uh, have come to pass. And of course, once hams got their hands on uh, tubes, once they could afford them. Regens just took off because uh, the sensitivity you could get out of a vacuum tube was um, thousands of times better than you could with, uh, with just crystal detectors. So they really, really took off back in those days. And uh, uh, for the longest time, the regen was, was the king. It was, um, it was the absolute uh, cat's meow uh, because it was simple, inexpensive, and it worked pretty darn well. And uh, there we go. The cat's meow as opposed to the cat's whisker. <laughs> a little bit of uh, a little bit of crystal radio humor there. Um, okay, so uh, the background uh, there is, is really quite interesting. When I when I started into ham radio and like many of you, I, well, I don't know, like many of you, but nonetheless, when I when I was around. Um, when I got into it, uh, transistors were really just coming out, and that was the newest, greatest the thing around. So that's what I focused on. I grew up on semiconductors and all of the semiconductor designs, and it hadn't been until the last decade or so that I really kind of came back to roots of ham radio as far as tube-based designs, tube-based radios, and, and principles. I think I told the story before, but Joe Shutters right down to the soles of his feet every time he thinks about the high voltages and the heat 
and uh, stray capacitance neutralization that's required and the high uh, well the, the the danger of getting in a chassis with uh, tubes but to me uh, tubes are, are really kind of what makes a ham radio a ham radio that's what I missed when I grew up so I'm enjoying it now now when I look at the uh, the two uh, the radios of, of old days and I, I see the pictures of the regens, such as I've shown, you know, we've got them here on the, on the whiteboard. And hopefully you're, you're kind of perusing the whiteboard and looking at the different photos. And you'll recognize what I'm saying here is that, you know, like, okay, one tube receiver, such as uh, I'm looking at the twinplex up at the top of our page. It's a real simple one tube regen. Um, uh, the, you can see a coil and a couple of uh, tuning caps and um, it, there's not much to it. What that tells me is that I can build that. I can build that really easily, and I did. I have been over the years, and uh, there's some art in in doing these things because, as Joe was alluding to a bit, um, there's a tremendous amount of gain and amplification, and uh, with that comes a selectivity, uh, but there's a lot of gain and the potential for uh, unwanted types of interactions of components. So you've got to be really careful about uh, where you mount some of the components, uh, whether it's with tubes or, or even transistors. <clears throat> but when I look back across all the different, you know, you do a, you do a Google search on, on radios and tubes or something, and you get a lot of these one-tube or two-tube wonders. And that, for me, really sparks um, an interest, a down-deep interest to, to do something, to do some kind of a project with, with those tubes. And that's what really brought me to the regens. Um, I meant to put on the page, I just didn't, I forgot, and I, and I didn't get a chance to catch up. I wanted to put an audio clip um, of a regen being tuned. And it's a very distinctive sound because the process of tuning um, a regen radio is that you bring it near to oscillation, at least for uh, AM reception, um, or right into oscillation for CW and SSB. And the process of getting it into oscillation, it makes a very, it produces a lot of uh, tones and, and whistles and as, you're, as you're tuning across um, the, the band. And it's very, very distinctive. And it kind of reminds me, too, of back when I was, you know, laying on the ground, on the floor of my grandfather's uh, living room. And as I indicated in the, in the, at the top of our whiteboard, I think, you know, listening to the, listening to the Yankees, not 1939, that was a bit before my time, but uh, listening to ball games and, and so on. I believe that we were using regen radios at that time, and, and he was. And that's what he had in his uh, room. And it's such a distinctive sound that you, you never really forget it. So we'll get a chance to put that onto the webpage later on. Um, just a quick uh, survey here. Has anybody built or just used a regen in the past? Yep. Use it regularly. My first radio that I built was a regen. I have one that I use daily. That's outstanding. Yeah, Dave, you said something? Yeah, my uh, my first uh, one that I built was one, too, uh, Radio Shack kit. And, Al, you uh, you spoke, too. What, what did you do? Uh, that was my very, very first uh, receiver uh, I was going to build it myself. I ordered all the parts in, took it to a local guy who was a radio repairman, 
And uh, he got so excited about it, he built it behind my back, and I went to go start to build it one day, and he already had it finished. But nevertheless, I had more fun with that regen receiver than I have any piece of gear in the past 55 years. I used to wind the coils and just to see what I could hear with them, and it was absolutely fantastic. I agree. I had the same experience years ago. Well, I am really encouraged to hear the uh, the stories here. This is really interesting, and it really kind of confirms, uh, you know, some of my statements here as far as a lot of us actually started that way. I built my first. Um, it was like an Amico clone, a, a one or two tube uh, um, trans um, uh, transmitter, and actually I got a reproduction of it uh, from my buddy K7SZ. Rich, you're here. Have you ever uh, have you ever played with Regen radios? Calling K7SZ. Rich, are you uh, on here? Yes, Rich is here. <laughs> okay. You've been around a long time, my friend. How about uh, regen radios for you? Have you had pre uh, previous experience with them? As a matter of fact, sorry about that. I had the, I was on the phone and I had the uh, microphone unplugged from the side of the of the computer, and of course, I can't see with my glasses on. I can't see with my glasses off, so it took me a while to figure out how to plug this thing back together. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, my very first Heath kit and the very first receiver I built was, uh, and, and used to any extent, was a GR81 Super Regen by Heath kit circa 1960-61. I still have it. Uh, it still works very good. It's actually a Super Regen, and I really don't know all that much of the difference between the two, but... Uh, I can still remember the QSL card from HCJB I got uh, from uh, with the little the kid in the uh, a little uh, guy guy with his llama, which is kind of cool. Outstanding. We're going to get into differences between regen and super regen in a little bit. So you guys had a little bit of experience, and, and if you if you're one of the ones that uh, did not here on board or on the uh, in the podcast listening um kind of be encouraged i guess is is my uh is my advice um as far as what you can do with it and it, it's fun it, we all are here because we'd like to build um and if you'd like to build with tubes we've got some great designs that we're uh, spotlighting here and chat with the designers we've got two or three superb um well, uh, two or three regen, uh, semiconductor-based regens, um, two of which are superb, one of which is falling, a falling off a log easy, and we're going to review each of those. And out of the out of the uh, out of the range of what we're going to be talking tonight, we're hoping that you might be able to uh, see something that's interesting and uh, give a shot at building it. Oh, by the way, something just happened on my uh, on my browser. It uh, reset to the top of the page, and that's because I put in a special HTML code to refresh the page. Because occasionally, I put in material throughout the throughout the uh, the show, and um, if you've got the page up, or if you've had the page up for the last 13 days, maybe, and not done a refresh, you would not see the new material added. So I put it in an automated way, and occasionally you will see your uh, screen pop to the top. So if you do that, nothing's wrong. There's no spyware or anything. You just kind of scroll back down to where you were. Okay. Hey, George. Okay. Yeah, Rich. 
Yeah, I just noticed. I just scrolled down underneath that uh, first bunch of pictures, and I saw the uh, the books uh, by T.J. Lindsay, the Twinplex Regen. I have that book, and I ha- I actually have all three of those books. But I noticed the the uh, C.F. Rocky is he still alive? I do not know, but I know that he is he is like the guru of gurus from uh, for Regens as. as uh, um, our friend here in New Jersey talks a lot about him. Is John K E three S? So I don't know. Okay, I was just curious because he was also very, very heavily involved in uh, long wave. Uh, the, that's that 1750 meter stuff where you have to transmit it right. It can only be The core is is about three Okay, Rich. You were starting to break up toward the end. I don't know if it was your internet connection. Your audio is a little muffled, but that's uh, that's okay. Alrighty, um, let's get into it. Let's get into this talking about some specific instead of all these glittering generalities. Uh, the basics of uh, the basics of a regen radio is is pretty simple, actually. What the regen radio is is an oscillating detector. Simply put, it's an oscillating detector. What it uh, it does is it uh, it's an oscillator that mixes directly with the incoming RF signal right there at the uh, RF signal at the RF frequency that you're or very 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 close to the frequency that you're looking to be receiving, and um, it's a mixer uh, a detector mixer, so it's an oscillating detector mic that mixes with the RF coming in, and it produces an audio signal at the baseband coming out that you can hear. So in many ways, the regen is is uh, kind of like a prede- predecessor to the um, uh, the direct conversion receiver. We'll talk a little bit of more about that because it's really interesting the analogy between the two. Um, but as I've said before, the oscillator um, serves as a very high gain amplifier at the same time of doing the detection, and it's also a high uh, a very high Q. It's a Q multiplier, so it, the amplification involved in a single stage, be it transistor or a tube, um, this oscillator serves to, A, mix uh, against the incoming RF signal, and the process of mixing, of course, is that uh, it, um, you're mixing the oscillator frequency against the RF frequency coming in, and the difference between the two turns out to be the audio that you can hear. And uh, that's that's a pretty high output. Um, all said and done, it's a couple hundred millivolts of uh, audio coming out of this one stage. And the fact that it's got a lot of gain gives it an awful lot of Q. So um, it, the selectivity, as Joe mentioned, is very, very high. It's got a very high Q, and it is an extremely highly selective type of receiver. And for that reason... It, um, it 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 um, is very selective all by itself. And most receivers that we know and and use um, deal with a front end that has um, bandpass filtering coils and and capacitors to limit the frequencies coming into it. Um, and hence, you need that that arrangement of of coils and caps and tuned circuits for every band that you want to be operating. Within the range that the regen is able to oscillate, it can operate directly without anything on the input 
and it provides its own um, high Q selectivity such that you can really um, pick out those signals and distinguish between s s multiple signals coming in and uh, um, it, it ends up with being a very good clean audio output. So um, regens can detect just about any kind of modulated signals coming in. Most often it's used for AM and CW and SSB um, and hence digital too. So if you can get SSB audio or uh, uh, if you can get audio out of your, your mixer, the out of your oscillating detector mixer, you'll be able to um, to take certain kinds of digital encoded digital signals and put them into your computer um, in order to decode them. So, um, but it can also do FM. It can do FM much better than or totally instead of um, what a superhead can do because of the, uh, the way in which the, uh, the selective, the, when you're tuning the regen, it, uh, you're able to adjust the, the slope of the gain and the frequency. And you can really tightly control the characteristics in order to give the best possible reception. Um, let's talk for a minute about tuning the regen, because that's where most of our operator experience, of course, comes in, just tuning the knob. And uh, in effect, there, there's a, there are a couple of controls in the regen that allow you to... Uh, um, to control the level of regeneration, and then, of course, the frequency that your oscillator tube or transistor is working at. Again, think of this as an oscillator that you're, adjust, you're able to uh, adjust. It's an RF oscillator at the frequency that you're trying to receive, and you're bringing it closely, uh, you're bringing the oscillator closer and closer into oscillation stage. Let me say that again. You're bringing the, the oscillator stage itself closer and closer to oscillation. And uh, depending on the kind of signal that you're trying to receive, and let's talk AM, as you approach the point of oscillation, the detection process begins to happen. And um, once again, you have uh, you are able to get the audio out of uh, its output. And in the case of CW and SSB, we have, once you put the oscillator into, once you put the um, the regen stage into oscillation, then you're able to get a, essentially a beat note with the uh, carrier coming in, um, essentially. Joe, can you help me explain this? If I, you know, from another perspective, it might uh, it might be more clear. Well, I think you've got the heart of it down, George. Um, the regeneration control uh, adjusts the gain of the amplifier. Well, there are a couple ways of doing it, but most generally the regeneration control uh, controls the gain of the uh, the amplifier, the the uh, active element that's going to be uh, caused to regenerate. There is a there's feedback from the output to the input, and as you increase the gain of the tube or transistor by adjusting the uh, regeneration control, as you increase the gain. Um, it's multiplied by this positive feedback. So the, the more gain you have, the more positive feedback uh, is amplified, so you get higher and higher gain, and indeed uh, higher selectivity also, till you reach the point of oscillation when uh, they've actually, you get the beat note that George is talking about. The super regen, on the other hand, if I may just inject a side point, 
is generally used at VHF and above. It is something that uh, oscillates all the time, but it has a either a self-induced quench oscillation or an external quench oscillation. So it goes into and out of oscillation all the time, which makes it good for AM or FM slope detection, but uh, not at all good for CW because you don't get a beat note. You're able to get some really good, high-quality audio from a regen. I want to state that it's got a high dynamic range. You'll note that um, you'll note this characteristic in the crystal clear type of reception that uh, you're able to hear. And in some cases, the um, especially from um, a CW or a sideband, when you're actually operating from within within the oscillation portion of the regen, when the regen is always oscillating, you have an extremely stable um, receiver. You don't have to tune it or keep it tuned. It doesn't drift per se. You can listen to a QSO in progress uh, uh, quite well. A little bit different on the AM side because the um, you're operating closer to you know, you're running up and down the the slope of the gain frequency um, curve, and it uh, the um, the the oscillation point, or actually how close you are to being in oscillation or not, is a little bit more sensitive, and thus it might be a little bit more sensitive to tuning. You might need to, to keep it tuned. But in generally, with amazingly few parts, this is an easy thing to build. It costs less, even today, especially important, of course, in yesteryear, just after the Depression, um, and, and during, before and during the um, Depression, uh, the first one, the, uh, uh, and it consumes less power. So you, you got a lot of uh, good things going for you with it. The selectivity of the, of the receiver is completely under your control. And that's what I was describing um, or trying to describe a little bit before. Something called variable selectivity, which is just a name given to, as I said, kind of controlling how as you're turning uh, the regen control up and down and you're controlling how close you're coming to oscillation or not, that's under your control. And it allows you to really optimize that uh, the slope of the um, that characteristic that I was talking about. Now, this is really a lot different than the fixed high selectivity of, of superheads today that really keep them from effectively demodulating FM signals uh, by this slope detection method that we're describing. So it's a capability that kind of is not present in most receivers that we have. And it's a unique characteristic of the regens. Uh, uh, that we're talking about here and, and still operate. So, um, oh, and then the notes continue on and, and go on to describe something that, um, go on to describe that uh, how AM reception is operated just really close to the AM threshold. And, but for SSB and CW, you're actually within oscillation, uh, the oscillating point. And then uh, the regen should be tuned away from the carrier in order to produce that bead note. So that's why uh, we have an awful lot more sensitivity when listening, listening to very to high, very high, clear, clear CW, CW signals. Rich, do you have Rich, something? Have something? Uh, I was going to interject uh, here real quick. Uh, two things. Number one, regen receivers work very, very well with short antennas. Short antennas are good because there is a habit of these things radiating a signal. And that was one of the major problems during World War II, which is why they you know, went to a lot of superhead receivers, because 
you can actually direction find uh, on on the uh, regen receiver, and if, especially if you're a ship, uh, the enemy would know where you were at. So uh, one of the things they they like to do is get rid of those regen receivers as fast as they could. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to keep pressing the button. Sorry. Well, that's okay. You bring up a good point. We're just about ready to get into it, along with the uh, um, the many pluses that we that we talked about with the regens. There are a few negatives, and each one is is um, able to be mitigated uh, to one degree or, or, or almost entirely. Um, one that you said right there is that that re-radiation of the oscillator signal out the antenna is is a, a potentially negative thing. And I, frankly, I didn't think of it as being um, a problem in World War II, but now that you, state, as you stated, it, it obviously would be. Um, Remember, I said that there's no, there's nothing before the antenna, and nothing between the antenna and the regen stage. That's that's a plus from the standpoint of being able to, uh, you don't need the filtering uh, for the incoming signal. You don't need the or the selectivity because it's, the selectivity is all built into the regen stage. But the flip side of that coin is that your oscillator has a tendency, of course, to re-radiate out that same antenna that you have incoming signals at. And uh, that that's that's not a cool thing for the reasons that you said, Rich, but also for in the shack, if you've got some other things going on, and you could re-radiate a signal that you're trying to receive on and cause a thing called hum, um, kind of a um, I forgot the name of it, but it's it is a there's a hum that comes from that that process of detecting the signal that you're using to detect. And anyways. Now, the, the one solution, there are several, but one solution is to put an amplification stage in front of this, uh, the regen stage. That by nature, of course, then turns it into a super regen and also isolates the oscillator from the antenna itself. And um, it eliminates or tremendously reduces that anyways, that uh, the, the signal re-radiation out the antenna. Um, but it also, you know, it, it Ostensibly, you would use it for isolation and perhaps a little bit of gain, and uh, it's not thus the uh, the regen stage itself all by itself is not the single control as it was in a in a in a basic regen. But anyways, the the RF leakage is the problem. There's another problem. I think Joe might have been alluding to it when he was talking about the popping or the um, the blooping. At least uh, when there is a strong signal. When there's a strong signal coming in the antenna and you're detecting it with your oscillating detector, that is your regen stage, um, there's a tendency that that oscillator has a tendency to lock onto that RF signal. So, um, and, and thus, thus not provide you the kind of uh, agility with tuning that you had previously. So there's a simple solution on that is to use some kind of an attenuator on the input uh, from the amplifier from the antenna uh, to reduce the signal coming into your regen stage. Now that when, it, when the blocking happens, it can uh, prevent the regen from being used when you're using it with a high power trans, uh, transmitter and you want to have some kind of a keying monitor, you know, to have a receiver kind of like set by your transmitter so you can hear yourself keying, which is a nice thing to, to have also. But uh, if, if you've got blocking problems on your regen, you can't do that, and uh, you need to put a separate uh, side tone oscillator on it. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, quick question, and something that always uh, frustrated me a little bit about regens. 
how do you spot the thing to your transmitter? How do you know when you have your receiver on the right frequency? Yes. If a strong local signal blocks. Yeah, this this is a big, big issue, and it's that same sort of thing. Uh, it's the same sort of thing as the blocking issue, too. Uh, the, the best way of doing it is, is with a transfer oscillator. And the classic way with the regen that I have is with a BC-221 frequency meter. But this is very, very cumbersome, and I've never found a better way. Well, there's a technique that, frankly, Joe and I were working on uh, doing a, a while ago. It sort of fell by the wayside. And that is to put a uh, – and this might be the same technique, um, uh, Pete, I'm not sure what, what you were describing. But if you could put a – imagine putting a frequency counter close enough to the regen oscillator, uh, to your regen stage, which is close to oscillating, um, and then be using that as the frequency indicator on your front panel of the regen. Now, there's always a challenge, and, and we get, when we get into talking about uh, kind of building these things, you got to be really careful about, A, where you locate all the different components, because proximity to the oscillating, the active element in your in your regen stage might have a tendency to dampen or otherwise affect the regen's performance. You want to keep that oscillator able to freely oscillate on its own, just based on the amount of gain that you're, uh, you're setting the regen level. And putting that, that stage into oscillation is all important. So locating a sensitive antenna for your frequency counter, Joe, is probably a, a way to go about doing that, don't you think? Yeah, that, that really doesn't work very well, especially with my regen, which since the fellow brought up uh, World War II, actually this was not a problem in World War II with receivers. I have a, an RAL-7 uh, designed around 1939 by RCA, and this thing is absolutely incapable of generating any signal anywhere, even on the cabinet. It's got two RF, two uh, tuned, individually tuned RF amplifier stages before the detector and, and bypasses on everything. However, what I was saying before, the method of frequency uh, spotting that they used for that in those days was by a transfer oscillator, which means that you have your BC-221 sitting next to your receiver. And the BC-221 is a frequency meter, but in this case we're using it just to generate a constant tone like any, you know, it could use a signal generator or a synthesized oscillator or whatever. And you basically hear the signal that you want to respond to. You use the BC-221 to zero beat that signal or find or match the, match the tone of that signal and... Let's see, what's the next step? <laughs> There's a whole, I haven't done this for a while. Uh, and then, yeah, and then you use the BC-221 in its frequency meter uh, configuration, not as an oscillator, but as a frequency meter. Use the BC-221 to zero beat the transmitter to the BC-221. And that, that is designed to give you a signal in the headset that, gives you a zero beat by, by tuning the VFO dial. If you have one on the transmitter, you then can uh, listen to the BC-221 frequency meter, and when you've, when you've zeroed the frequency, you have that zero beat in the, in the headphones, and you hear it zero beat. And then, if you've done this correctly, uh, and if the station still is uh, on the air, <laughs> you can then respond on his frequency. It's not a real good way of doing it, though, from the, from the cumbersomeness angle. Yeah, that's what we were... Uh, that's what... Uh, there was actually... 
that's close to a second technique that Joe and I were experimenting with a while back, and I was going to mention that too. Today's uh, DDS VFOs are small and compact and a single chip uh, implementation to create a, a, a micro or a picowatt type of uh, power. So supposing you've got a signal coming in, you know, actually let me preface this for everybody to, to kind of put in perspective. On, on almost all of the receivers that you, sh you see shown on our white page, you see a very nice fancy dials, be it a, PW, a round PW dial, which I love. And I've got a lot of them, and I love building them into front panels of radios. Um, it just has a numeric indicator, like 1 to 100 or something. Or the NC, uh, I forgot what they're called, uh, uh, classic uh, NC17. NCX3. Yeah. And it's just a dial, um, um, a vernier dial that goes from 0 to 100 or whatever in a 180-degree arc. It, in other words, it's not calibrated. So each of us today enjoy kind of uh, using our receivers where you dial something on the front panel. You see either immediate feedback of what the frequency that you're on or the po um, an indicator that accurately indicates because it's calibrated and it shows exactly what frequency that you're working on. Such is not the case. Velvet Vernier, sorry. Such is not the case with the regents because of what we're talking about here. And it's just not a very, it would need to be calibrated in a very special and unique way for every radio that's, that's essentially built. You can get kind of close, but the challenge is to know what the, the desire that we have is to know what frequency the incoming signal is on. Uh, sometimes, you know, you, you can divorce yourself from that, that desire and just know that you're kind of generally in the ham band and, you know, you're, you're listening to a frequency that's somewhere around, you know, 7.1. Yeah, that's usually good enough. But for those of us around who want to know exactly what, uh, what uh, down to the 10, uh, 10 hertz, perhaps, of what operating point we're at, one way to do it would be, as Pete had described, or using a DDS um, um, signal generator, kind of as a local oscillator. So you you tune over to the signal that you're listening to, going do 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 do. So that's the signal you're trying to listen to, and then you kind of tune your you press the button, a spotting function perhaps on the DDS device, and tune it until you can really hear its signal come in on the regen. And then of course there is a readout on the DDS that says the specific frequency that it is generating at and. Voila, that's the technique. So that's a technique. That's a second technique that Joe and I were going to give it a try sometime. Again, too many projects, too many fun things to do, and not enough time. But uh, continuing down for the, uh, the the negative parts of, of the regen, the pros and cons, these are the cons. That hum modulation is what I was describing, and that's right there on the, as the last bullet on the negative uh, parts of the regen. Now, the last point we'll get into before we get into back into the actual pictures of the radios and, and discussions of those are um, the similarity to direct conversion receivers. I'm sorry, was there a comment in here? Oh, and before you get to that, one other, uh, for some people, uh, negative would be, surprise, there's no AVC. Yeah. Um, the similarities to direct conversion receivers is, is kind of uh, really interesting. Again, both mix a uh, the incoming RF at a given local oscillator and then beat the two together and the output is the audio signal that you want to be listening to, the, the audio signal of the AM station or of the side tone for the CW station or whatever. Now the direct conversion 
design gets its selectivity by means of that bandpass filtering, usually on the front end, and an addition perhaps of a Q multiplier or anything that's used to kind of uh, uh, produce a narrow sliver, only a narrow sliver of the band such that it can um, operate without interference from adjacent signals. And then the uh, audio gain for it, for the DC, the direct conversion um, sets, come from the amplification after the mixer. So you typically have several stages of audio amplification um, and whether it's an LM386 or, or, or anything else, that becomes your amplifying. You're trying to amplify a pretty low signal coming out of your, your direct conversion mixing stage. And, uh, you know, it might be your SA512 or any kind of a Gilbert cell that, that produces a mixing between the RF and the local oscillator. Now, the regen design is, is like that, as I said, but in that uh, you're mixing an LO with an incoming RF, but there's where the difference uh, really uh, starts to pick up and the, the, the similarities end. And the regen design, again, has the mixing, the selectivity, a Q multiplication, the amplification all built into the one stage. And as I said there, it's got a thousand-fold um, improvement or, or the, the signal and the, the gain and the selectivity are multiplied by a thousand over um, uh, during that particular mixing process. So it all happens in one stage and it's very controllable. So you can control how close you want to come to oscillation, hence you how selective you want to make that signal. Now, of course, the DC radio, the direct conversion radio, is a whole heck of a lot easier to operate. If you've not used a, a regen, it's it's kind of a tricky, delicate thing to uh, to operate. And there's a good analogy I came across in one of the references. And it's kind of the difference between an automatic transmission car and a manual transmission car. Now, we all know that the automatic transmission, you, just, you, know, you hop in, you turn it on, and you put it in drive, and you go. And it's easy, it's simple, anybody can do it, and they get you where you want to go. Now, the manual transmission is the regen receiver. Now, it has a, several controls, like, uh, you know, the clutch, and the accelerator, and your, your tack meter, and... But if with, for the skillful operator, that manual transmission automobile is going to be a heck of a lot better performer in the right hands. And it has to be a well-designed uh, car and a well-designed radio for it to do this. But it's going to be a better, uh, far better performer because of the manual or the different uh, controls that it offers. That was kind of a cool analogy that I thought uh, would be appreciated. Let's see. Um, L, K-8-A-X-W. L, you had... Uh, mentioned um, being weaned on regens, how would you describe tuning the regen with, uh, with uh, at least two controls? Uh, it was uh, fairly simple, George. Uh, I think I was about uh, 13 or 14 years old at the time, and uh, it was a very easy uh, learning experience. It was no problem whatsoever. Picked it up right off the reel. And uh, I had, like I said, I had great fun with it. Matter of fact, I was reading the whiteboard earlier this afternoon, and I, you know, brought back a lot of memories. I got really excited about it. Looked through the uh, uh, schematics, uh, ran them off on a printer, and um, I think I'm going to try to see if I can't work out something to build uh, one of these with my two grandsons. Um, it's 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 a lot of fun to do this, and. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out was the, as far as the frequency readout and all that is concerned, uh, it must be remembered that 
These things were used back in the days of crystal-controlled radios. So you built a transmitter, put a crystal in it, you had your frequency set, so you went and found it with the uh, regen receiver, and you was in business. Um, when I got my ticket back in the 50s, middle 50s, uh, it was common practice to operate split back then. You stayed on one frequency and went and searched for a signal up and down the band. And this is the way uh, with the regen receiver and crystal controlled transmitter, George. Oh, great point, Al. That, that's, a, that's a really good point. I thought you were going to lead up to, the, um, to another ancillary point, sort of saying that back in the older days, the, the calibration on the dials wasn't as good as we have it or as we've come to expect it with our, with our DDSs and our phase lock loops and our, our precise measurements of, of operating frequencies such that the operators back then really didn't care an awful lot, other than knowing that they were within band, of course, but to know down to the hertz level, perhaps, where you were operating wasn't quite as much of a big deal. So I think that feeling was around as well, but the point you're making are very good about split operation, and you you, you put your uh, your rock on a certain frequency, your transmitter rock, you you put your, you set your transmitter at a certain frequency because it's crystal controlled, and then you can search around that plus or minus with your receiver, and then you really didn't know, didn't care exactly what frequency you were receiving on. You knew that you were pretty darn close to where your transmitter was, so that's uh, that's kind of a good point. Um, let's get over into the uh, uh, the designs. I'm going to slide really quickly through some things here, so we can get down to the design at the bottom of the page, which is kind of like the featured attraction here. Um, with the uh, uh, the desert rat design. Um, if you want to follow me through the white page, again, those three books um, are, are really good to have. If you if you really want, if you're a home brewer and you like tubes and you want to know about the history of them and, and be able to build some of these things, any one of those three books or all three of them are just gold mines relative to information and a joy to read and simplicity of the designs is, is so invigorating and I, I just love them. I tell you and Joe, nobody could tell tell us more than Joe how many projects I've got on my uh, on my to-do list here but uh, I, I continually want to be doing that. Okay and then a fourth book there is called Surviving Technology by Bruce Vaughn and R5Q. I talked about this book Oh, two months ago during a chat with a designer session. And again, I come back to it because half the book is talking about the early days of his radio design. And he is a, a radio, radio builder extraordinaire. Um, he's built all of the earlier ones and great. He wouldn't believe the number of great radios he has. There's a couple of good uh, PowerPoint slide decks that I have. Um, I'm not sure where I got them, but I can, see how to share them or refer you to, but they have wonderful, wonderful pictures of the history of uh, radios that Bruce himself built up, and he talks about them, and he talks about them in this book. Now, the second half of this book, Surviving Technology, specifically addresses the ultimate regen receiver, and that's the one pictured uh, with a black panel just below the book. Now, the reason I put that in there is because uh, John, again, my... my uh, my buddy up in Pennsylvania, KE3S, and I are both quite into regens, and we selected that we wanted to build one together, each of us building one, and we selected the same radio here, the ultimate regen, and for a variety of reasons that I won't get into, but it's just a good design. And uh, this is Bruce's design. And the second half of that book, uh, Surviving Technology, 
um, details it in like five or six chapters worth of buildup as far as building that uh, uh, building that regen radio. And I will feature it. And I've got, I didn't have time to get its photos into uh, into this whiteboard, but uh, mine is in partial construction, and I'm having a ball with it. It looks sort of similar to this, but but different, if you know what I mean. And the schematic is below that. Um, won't go through that too much. It's not necessarily the focus for tonight, but I wanted to show that uh, at least there are two sections. Uh, the regen, the ultimate regen, has. Um, uh, is on two chassis. One is the actual, uh, it's the input, uh, it's the, the antenna input in the regeneration stage, and the other uh, box, if you will, the other chassis, is the power supply and the audio amplifier, separated um, for the purists to keep uh, the, the, uh, the heat away from the regen receiver part, and to prevent uh, or just provide some additional isolation. Now we go down here. Um, oh, and in the next one is uh, KX. I'm sorry, K4XAF. So um, uh, uh, Jim there built up and has a really nice web page. You can see it. I've got the web page listed there. So he's got a nice web page that chronicles his building of the uh, NRQ uh, the N. Uh, the NR5Q receiver, and he talks why, about why he calls it the NRQ62. I won't go into that now, but it's a it's a nice story. And once again, it's a marvelous design. I've seen it, I've heard it, and, and I'm building one, and I'm, I'm really proud of it. Now, I'm going to slide through the tips on building regen receivers. You can read that on your own. A lot of it concerns... Um, the reasons why uh, the things that you need to be careful about because of the high gain there's a lot of uh, coupling that can happen in the regen stage that um, are caused by ground loops it's caused by proximity of the regen oscillator components to other things you don't want to dampen or otherwise kind of quench the the oscillation um, that that's naturally you want to happen in the regen stage and as Rich pointed out in the beginning, the, the grounding and the antenna is kind of a, it's a bit of an art. I think it's a bit of an art, but I'm sure there is uh, there's science to it. But uh, generally, connecting uh, to a good ground is important. Connecting the, um, a long enough antenna is, is also important. And if your regen isn't working right, the first thing to be playing around with is the length of the ground wire that might be laying along the floor or the antenna that's hanging out the window. There, the tuning, um, the tuning practice for a regen receiver is described here. Pretty much what we talked about, but uh, it's a really interesting thing to look through and and get a hang for because it's it's like nothing you've experienced before. If you have not used a regen before, you will find it arcane, Byzantine, and just generally archaic at first. But then you kind of grows on you, and it's just really really fun. Now. Here's where I'd like to start getting your attention focused on a couple of really good uh, good designs. If you're into tubes, the ones I talked about before would be just great. The Twinplex is so fun. And the A8, uh, the AA8V design at the very top of the page, he has a wonderful web page that chronicles how to build it. So that's, that's the one for you if you're into tubes. If you want to do transistors, here's one from Charles Kitchen, who is another noted, noted expert in uh, regen designs, N1TEV. Um, Joe and I saw uh, Charles up at uh, 
the Mass Massachusetts QRP convention, he talked about this about this design, which at that time was, I think, uh, just recently published in uh, in QEX, and it's called the High Performance Regen Receiver Design. And looking at the photos, you might not think it's too high performance, but it really is for the reasons that are described in his amply, amply um, uh, documented and researched paper that the PDF points to, the, the link under the, the title there, uh, points to his paper, his QEX article, which is public domain. And you can get it and read it. And that, uh, um, I'm going to build that, but I'm leading up to it in several stages. But that is going to be one that I really want to build. Now, coming down to uh, something that you can build quickly are two designs. Uh, if you want to build it with your grandson, if you want to build it as I did, one of these with uh, a local neighborhood, a uh, couple of boys in the neighborhood, and then I ultimately took it over to the scout troop, and uh, we had a, a project for all of the scouts. Um, the first design is the Regen Shortwave Receiver, again, by Charles Kitchen, N1TEV. And um, the schematic is really, really quite simple. There's a couple of tricks and, and how to actually put it together. And actually, <clears throat> there is a PC board from FAR Circuits, and the reference is below the schematic. And you can contact FAR to get that PCB and... And Charles recommends using the PCB because there's a couple of techniques that are kind of built into the board that provide nice a nice isolation for the stages, and it allows you to uh, um, uh, to build it with the greatest uh, chance for success. Now, the one that we the last one before we really start drilling down into something else, um, the one that is uh, yet another one from Charles Kitchen is called the Simple Regen Receiver for Beginners. And I took that design and I, I kind of packaged it up in a manner that could be built. And you see it there with a couple of PCBs that were, uh, I'm sorry, a couple of uh, copper clad uh, board materials that were soldered at the edge to, to form the front panel and the base. And a speaker hole in the front and uh, a simple whip antenna, and a coil built up on a pill bottle. I'm sorry, that's a, a film canister, a plastic film canister. And you plug your... Uh, your your crystal phones into the uh, into the front panel nine volt battery and you're in business and I'll tell you we had more fun with that I had uh, several build sessions here in the shack in fact yeah there's a photo I, I forgot if I had included it or not there's a fellow there in a photo called Mark now this is some ten years ago um, maybe nine years ago Mark Mark has just graduated from seminary school uh, college. And uh, but this is when he was younger, and I'll tell you, he is uh, he remembers this day when putting together his regen and getting it working, having the light come on in a student's uh, in a in a kid's eye when they actually turn something on and they built and hear radio stations coming out of the speaker is the absolute most phenomenally uh, motivating thing that you can have as as an Elmer, and uh, doing that again with your son, your grandson. The kids in the neighborhood, a local scout troop. I did this with the Girl Scouts as well. And a couple of them really, really enjoyed it and, and kind of helped open their eyes to electronics and radio overall. This is a great design. As a first design, this would be something that you'd really want to give a shot at, I think. And the article that's linked in here uh, down at the bottom, the references, gives us some good detail on how to do it, things to watch out for, parts you can substitute, and so on. Um, quick break. Did anybody build 
any of these, the uh, the Boy Scout receiver or the uh, the simple regen or the super, um, the ultimate regen from uh, from Charles Kitchen. Anybody build these things? Oh, that's a shame. Because I think uh, I think you would really enjoy it, and I'm hopefully maybe getting some of your interest up. And uh, George, yeah, go ahead. Uh, this well, before you get any further, I'm looking at this one that uh, on the copper chassis, and I'm. I'm wondering if the uh, coil that close to the PC board that you made the cabinet from, uh, if this PC board has any effect on that coil. I was looking up there at things to watch out for, and one of them was to keep the coil three inches away from a metal chassis or any metal. Well, it seems to work well enough. Now, it might work better with a taller can or if you pop it up, uh, prop it up uh, higher above the board. You'll also see that it's close to that um, the frame for that variable capacitor. So it's kind of a double whammy. Um, I might have been able to arrange the circuit a little bit differently to to um, to improve on that, but it uh, would, wouldn't hurt making it further isolated, uh, Al. Thank you. Any other questions we, before we proceed into the Desert Red? I'm going to turn it over to Joe here in a second, and we're going to start going through this design because this also is, a, is another easy, tried-and-true through many iterations probably the best chance for success. Plus, for this one, you don't need to use any uh, variable capacitors that are getting kind of hard to come by. You don't need a 360 puff cap dual cap that I used in the in the Boy Scout regen. And this one uses varicap diodes. So let's, uh, Joe, let's get into it here. Um, what I did is I jotted down some notes as far as the, what the different stages are, but uh, I think you can go into a lot more detail perhaps about some of these stages and what their inherent characteristics are and why Paul chose to use uh, uh, use uh, an isolation amplifier to keep the detector away from the, the Q2 regen transistor and whatnot. Uh, go ahead. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try not to get too long-winded on this because it, uh, it could really get into some detail. But uh, basically, this is the... Uh, what Paul Harden NA5N called the Desert Rat 2, which um, was the result of uh, several iterations of building regen receivers, originally starting with um, Charles Kitchen's designs. By the way, Charles Kitchen, um, for those who don't know, uh, works for Analog Devices, which is an extremely high-tech company that makes fancy modern ICs for RF applications. And yet, one of the guys who works up there, Charles, uh, still likes the old uh, regens. Anyway, Paul um, put a lot of thought and several modifications into his design. We have the circuit reproduced at, uh, in the whiteboard in color. And uh, one of the first things Paul did was he added an amplifier. There's a 2N3904 um, common emitter amplifier that uh, isolates the regen from the antenna so that um, you don't re-radiate the oscillator, uh, the oscillation from the receiver when it's oscillating. And also, um, some have noted, I certainly have noted, that um, uh, moving your hand near the antenna, or if it's an outdoor antenna, having the antenna wave around can uh, pull the frequency of a regen receiver. So Paul used a simple um, amplifier there to do that, to uh, isolate it. In addition, he has a very simple high-pass filter to prevent uh, um, AM broadcast signals from getting into the receiver and overloading it. 
uh, which is a particular issue when you uh, when you have an untuned amplifier like this. Anyway, um, the heart of the, uh, the regen uh, circuit itself is another 2N3904 transistor, common emitter. It's hooked up with uh, an inductor, uh, which is a uh, in a partly oscillator configuration. Um, it's biased by a couple um, by an LED and a uh, 1N914 diode, so that you have a reasonably stable three volt. Uh, uh, regulated voltage for the oscillator. That's to provide additional stability, so that uh, changing uh, supply voltage doesn't um, doesn't cause you problems. The regeneration is controlled with a resistor in the a pot in the emitter of the transistor. It just sets the current gain of um, sets the current operating current level, and thus the gain of uh, of the transistor. It's tuned by um, uh, a couple, one in 4,004 diodes. So they're common rectifier diodes. But as Paul says, they change. I think each diode uh, varies between uh, 40 and 90 picofarads as you uh, change, uh, set the voltage of DC across it, varying from uh, a couple volts up to 9 volts. So that's the, the actual tuning capacitor. And then uh, that tuning voltage is comes from a potentiometer off the 9-volt battery. There's some band switching to switch in some fixed capacitance across the uh, across the bearer caps um, to uh, give you some band switching uh, in addition to the uh, the variable uh, uh, tuning in the in the one band you're on. Then the output of this uh, regen is uh, an RF signal. It's actually two RF signals if you're um, if you're oscillating receiving CW. That then goes to another isolation stage, which is another 2N3904 that's set up as a an emitter follower. This gives you isolation so that you you uh, the output the audio circuitry doesn't load down the the uh, regen circuit, so that you're uh, a lot more stable in operation. Uh, it's not affected by um, pulling from the other stages. And to get the absolute uh, maximum detection from this, rather than relying on the nonlinearity of the transistors, Paul adds a, um, a couple diodes. There's an actual uh, diode detector there at the output of that common emitter amplifier that then feeds a, um, a common uh, potentiometer that, uh, there goes that, Darn page blipping from renewing. I don't like that when I'm in the middle of describing a circuit. Anyway, there's a, uh, a potentiometer used as volume control. And then that's fed to another innovation that Paul did. He uses a um, uh, splitter circuit. He uses a transistor as a splitter to get a differential voltage uh, to feed a um, LM386 amplifier. The LM386 amplifier, you get double the gain if you feed it differential, differentially. So Paul does that with that uh, splitter transistor. And then the um, this U1, uh, the LM386 amplifier, simply an auto amp to uh, take the voltage level up from uh, 100 millivolts or so to a volt, as much as a volt peak to peak out to a loudspeaker. Uh, one other comment I wanted to make about the circuit um, 
as Paul Bilded, I believe he did have a speaker on the uh, front panel. But one of the things I noted was, uh, as in building these receivers, was wasn't always a good idea to have a speaker on the panel because the vibration of the speaker then will vibrate the regenerative uh, detector and uh, make it unstable. So as you tune across audio, um, the regen is, is trying to pull itself with the audio. Kind of a little unsettling. Uh, that's a quick run-through. It's, a, it's a, an optimized regen. Paul put a lot of thought into this and uh, made a, a very good high-performance uh, receiver that Charles Kitchen came up with, um, even uh, higher performance, and he got around some of the handicaps that uh, uh, are present in uh, the simpler uh, regen circuits. It's uh, four transistors and one IC, still not a very bad uh, uh, lineup for uh, for a simple receiver. Too bad that there's not a uh, the uh, uh, picture of the Manhattan construction, the actual physical components that Paul sometimes does. I'm, I was really surprised to learn that he that there is not such a diagram um, because oftentimes, even if it's just a block diagram on a physical circuit board, sometimes, uh, well, in this case here, very very most certainly, the organization of where your stages are in respect of each other and especially the routing of the grounds and as you were suggesting you know even the mounting of the speaker becomes a uh, a critical thing as far as the success factor for a very high gain amplifier such as a regen so uh i curiously did a uh well i, I didn't curious i guess i was curious i did a, i did a google search on design uh, desert rat 2 or desert rat radio and did not find, at least readily, um, any uh, photographs of people who have built this um, to give me ideas for how it would be laid out optimally or the problems that they might have encountered. So I'm surprised about that, given the lineage and the length of time that this design has been around and such, that there's not a lot of photos on it. I think um, um, <laughs> the brain is not working this evening. Uh, Chuck Adams, K7QO, um, led somewhat of a uh, construction project on the QRP-Tech list back a year or so ago where they built some regen receivers, and indeed it may have been the uh, Desert Rat or a variant of it. And um, indeed there was a, an iterative process there where a number of people built it and compared their results and I think they uh, they described some of the things they had to do in terms of layout, uh, keeping the coil away from the tuning coil away from the chassis and such to get the optimum performance. So if you look in the archives for the uh, QRP Tech uh, Yahoo list, I think you might find some uh, sketches and diagrams uh, that might be gui good guidance for building a receiver like this. Good idea, Ellen, George. Look at that. Go ahead, Al. Uh, I just posted a uh, link uh, to photographs of the Desert Rat. Okay. Interesting. I'll have to zoom in on that. I'm not sure which one is Desert Rat. Maybe maybe the ones in the top left-hand corner next to Rat 3. Rat 3, I think, was a successor to Rat uh, to the Desert Rat 2. And uh, the information I there's the information I saw in call it the genealogy of this design. Um, 
said that it's better to start with the RAT2 instead of the RAT3. But it's a good, uh, it may be a good representation. I see, I see the picture of the inside copper clad there. Um, while I'm thinking of it, be sure to touch with, uh, to read the, uh, um, I don't have the page dialed up now or the links at the bottom of our page, but there is one that shows the history of the, of the regen, uh, maybe the desert rat history. And it, it talks about, as I mentioned at the start of the show, on um, that, uh, the different steps or stages or the different evolution of the designs. And you might want to take a look at that. And some of the pros and cons of each of the design were listed. Um, Alan and W2AEW, do you, if you have audio, you're going to mention about your, uh, your discovery about the 4001 uh, uh, diode? Actually, I just thought that was interesting that they're using some 4001s there as varactors. 4004s. Oh, 4004s, yeah. But uh, very interesting. But that actually wasn't my question. Um, you know, looking at the build notes there, uh, note number one, uh, about uh, describing that uh, T1 is wound directly on the PCB. Um, I guess I'm trying to picture what he means by that. Is it just uh, kind of the tail end of the PCB where there weren't any components? He just used that as effectively a core you know, or a form to wind uh, this, uh, this transformer on? Because uh, it, it only gives like, kind of one set of values uh, from pins three through six. I guess you could scale everything from there if you wanted to build it in a different way. But I don't know if there's an illustration of uh, that somewhere to kind of you know, show what he means by wounding on the PCB directly. Toroid. Joe, do you want to comment on that, if you can find it? Yeah, I see the note, and I wondered at that, too. I don't believe it was a toroid. I think uh, I think he, he um, had a piece of uh, PC board. He took the copper off and just used it as a um, a flat plate of uh, phenolic uh, or uh, glass epoxy material to wind the, wind the coil on. I think it was going for um, ultimate cheapness, but uh, certainly not much performance. He does also say it can also be mounted on a 35-millimeter uh, uh, film can, a plastic pill bottle, etc., which I think would be a better coil form. Joe, do you want to comment on the use of the two thousand or the one uh, N four thousand four as a varicap uh, diode? Yeah, I don't know a lot of it. A number of people have uh, used various Zener diodes, uh, LEDs, uh, and um, uh, rectifier diodes um, as uh, as varicaps. The one N four, the higher the voltage, the uh, the wider the the physical gap. The, um, it almost approaches a PIN junction, uh, but it's the wider the gap um, in the diode junction between the the, uh, the P material and the N material, and uh, the width of that gap varies as you apply uh, a reverse bias to it. So it does act like a, a voltage variable capacitor, uh, low Q probably, and uh, it varies between manufacturers, but. Uh, it's good enough to get some tuning out of it, and uh, certainly cheap. Kitchen used that in his uh, regen from, uh, I think it was uh, June 2000 QST, and uh, I think um, Steve Weber has used that in a couple of his uh, regen designs as well. You mean the use of diodes? I went in uh, 4001 series as a reactor. Your audio is just a little bit rough, Jim, but I really appreciate the input. Yeah. And um, obviously, by varying the voltage, the back voltage, um, the reverse voltage across that diode, it's providing, at least here, it's providing, what we say, um, from 8 to 90, 8 
picofarads to 90 picofarads. So if your if your oscillator is able to uh, be tuned by that particular uh, changing capacitance, you're in business. That's a good trick to to keep in mind. Uh, any comment on that line uh, through T1? Um, I've never seen one like that. Nor I. I'll have to ask Paul about it. See what he says. I I am going to contact Paul. Uh, I I communicate with him periodically. I'll ask. Have to ask him about that. And I'll also ask if he has any uh, pictures available. Well, I, it, just reading that note now, I hadn't looked at it until now. It sort of looks like um, he's using the copper clad. Um, one and a half inch by one and a half inch square piece of copper clad as the uh, as the core, although that would seem to be an unusual choice of of uh, ferrous material. Yeah, not not good for high Q or stability. Well, you also indicate you can wind wind it on a pill bottle or a film can, and that uh, I assume a plastic film can, but that would change the characteristics too. Yeah, but the uh, plastic dielectric is a lot lot better for uh, uh, an inductor than uh, the copper-clad board. Having a conductor right right uh, with windings right against it is a is a great way to kill the kill the Q and to put a lot of stray capacitance in there. Yeah, I know, but I phrased that wrong. I'm talking about I'm comparing the uh, PC board uh, coil form versus the film can. There, it would change. You would have to change windings someplace. Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, the inductance would be vastly different. Yeah, uh, I'll contact Paul and see what I can find out. And uh, if I find out anything good, I'll uh, I'll have George put them in the in the uh, the after notes. Looking at the at the picture of the uh, the Desert Rat three that we that was pointed to by the link, it looks like a standard toroid to me. Uh, toroid core it might even be like an FT thirty seven dash two. But uh, nonetheless, we'll, we'll find out that that's kind of interesting, an interesting point. Okay, we're going to probably wrap it up now. Are there any final uh, questions or comments about regens? Did we, uh, did we do the job in kind of stimulating your interest in, in the regen radio and provide a couple of good ways to, uh, uh, to go from on your home brewing bench? John, go ahead. Yeah, I just wondered what the... Um uh, the frequency coverage of the Desert Rat 2 is, I did read through it, but I can't seem to locate it anywhere. Um, I don't know what the Desert Rat 2 frequency coverage is. Uh, generally, um, generally, these only work up to, uh, what is it, Joe, probably around the um, the 15 megahertz, whatever band, you know, shortwave band that, that turns out to be, but it doesn't go much higher than 14 or 15 megahertz. Uh, because of stability, I think, in, in the components being used, uh, the, the interaction at VA, uh, higher frequencies with the components and the leads being used. Is that about right, Joe? Yeah, I, as I recall, in too long, as I recall reading it, it was somewhere in the um, the um, 5 to 15 megahertz region, I think, was the target frequencies to cover the um, primarily the 40 and 20-meter handbands. But I'm not uh, not 100 percent sure. Yeah, there is a problem with uh, regens getting them up into the higher uh, frequencies of the HF spectrum. And my uh, RAL7 goes to 22 megahertz, and that's I think as far as you can reasonably push it. However, 
you can set up a regen, as I have with a Tentec 1054 and a um, Kedwood TS50, such that the regen acts as what we used to call a Q-fiber. The uh, regen is tuned to the IF of the receiver, which may be 455, or in this case, close to 10.7 megahertz. And that works very well. It also gets rid of the spotting problem as long as you mute to the uh, receiver on, uh, on transmit uh, as, another, as another alternative. Yeah, side like of that, the um, S38 receiver, in order to get the BFO for CW, made its IF stage regenerative. And they call it a Q multiplier. No, it was not a Q multiplier. It was a. Uh, it was actually how they got CW. They didn't uh, didn't tout it as as a, a Q multiplier. But in fact, it was a Q multiplier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I think Justin was trying to get in there. Is your uh, fancy then headset working right, Joe? Yeah, I think so. How does it sound? Um, one of the thoughts, um, I don't know if you remember this, Joe, but one of the meetings I brought in the Kiwa uh, loop, the Kiwa uh, regenerative loop. Uh, you guys ever build a regenerate, an, an act feedback on a uh, antenna? Yeah, I, I do remember that. As a matter of fact, yeah, that was that was to get some gain and uh, higher Q out of a loop. Um, how'd that ever work uh, out? It works great. I mean, it's really the front end. It's a, a, um, a three degrees of freedom loop antenna that has an active uh, uh, regenerative loop uh, feedback path, and uh, you can set the gain just below and, and increase the Q. So. All your selectivity is on your front end, right on the antenna. It's not in the uh, following IF stages. Yeah, Robert, go ahead. At the risk of repeating something that's already been said, uh, Doug Hendricks in his uh, QRPKits.com uh, webpage lists say... Uh, you, you dropped out, but I think you, you the point you were making is that Doug offers a, a regen kit called the Scout Regen. And that's I believe right. that's... Yeah, that's a derivative of the uh, uh, the Simple Beginners uh, Regen Radio from Charles Kitchen, and and likewise the one that I built for uh, my scouts. So that that's an inexpensive uh, kit to get. I think it's on the order of what was it, Joe? Sixty uh, bucks. It's fifty. Okay, fifty bucks. And did you build one, Robert? No, I have not built one of those. Okay. I did, and it's a it's a nice performer. I think um, it's on the class in the class of the simple, get it working kind of thing, just as, as my uh, Scout Regen was. Um, I'm going to make a list of other uh, product designs out there that you can buy kits for. That is, have all the ready-made parts handy in Scout Regen, the Tentec 1054. I don't know if that's still available. Um, the Kenwood TS50. Does anybody know if the TS50 is still available? Uh, that's a sideband transceiver, and no, it isn't available, but has no regen at all. Somebody mentioned it. Now, maybe I wrote the name wrong. Uh, who mentioned the Kenwood? Uh, I did, but I mentioned using a regen at 10.7 megahertz, the IF of the TS50, uh, and, and that yeah, that allows for you know, a whole bunch of things like, uh, well, I, I built it because I could, couldn't afford the CW filter on the, uh, on the transceiver. Oh, okay, that clears that up. And I suspect uh, Rich, if you're still, let's see, Rich is uh, Rich is uh, not here again. 
I suspect in, in a moment of jest that the Heathkit GR81 is no longer available. And nobody has a mention on that one, of course. You probably get it for a thousand bucks on eBay. Ooh, okay. Um, alrighty, we're, we're kind of at the, at the time here. A final call for Joe. I'm going to make a final, uh, comment, but why don't you, uh, wrap us up? No need for the long recap, but, uh, maybe mention what we did tonight and, uh, and uh, thank everybody here. Certainly, yeah. yeah we uh, we went over regen receivers tonight, and uh, going over regen seems uh, kind of circuitous. Um, we just, we uh, covered regen receivers back from the very early days, provided a number of examples, and um, uh, some popular ones over the years for, of uh, both tube and uh, solid state vintage. Tried to give some. Uh, a discussion of some highlights and uh, some of the uh, disadvantages also of uh, receivers, regen receivers, and uh, provided um, some some depth of a uh, description of uh, an attempt by Paul Harden to build a, a regen that circumvents some of those difficulties, comes up with a reasonably simple, uh, easy-to-duplicate design. Um, I recommend all of you check out some of the references. There are a lot in this uh, session. Um, in the whiteboard, you can find out much more info, and um, I think we'll augment it afterward uh, in the next week or so with even more information. So you can whet your appetite and build up some regions and get going with them. Go ahead, George. Thanks, Joe. And I really hope that uh, some of you, if not a lot of you, give a shot at uh, making up some of these regions. They are just fun, plain to operate. And even if you just do one to kind of explore some of the points that we've been making here, I think you'll you'll uh, expand your experience and have some fun, learn it a little bit in the process, and then you'll be able to have a chance at saying that you actually, of course, used the regen, the basis for an awful lot of the early radios of uh, of uh, ham radio time period. Okay. Um, the one final announcement we wanted to make for tonight is that we're going to change our uh, frequency of meetings to and from being weekly to bi-weekly. We're going to go to bi-weekly meetings of the chat with the designers. To be totally honest, and if you might, uh, might not have noticed, that there's a lot of work that goes into preparing these sessions on a weekly basis. Uh, preparing in advance, of course, doing here the show. Um, and uh, afterwards, uh, handling the audio, getting the podcast ready, getting the extra material up. And before you know it, the next week is upon us. And, and Joe and I find ourselves kind of running from one event to the other. And frankly, we don't have enough time to do justice, or at least the kind of quality that we want to do, for the material being presented and some of the follow-on projects, uh, the ancillary projects that were uh, that ripple out of, of the different programs. Um, we've got at least three or four projects that are continuing to be in progress. Uh, that is you know, sort of the uh, uh, the sweeper input card, um, the GPS receiver evaluation board, um, the growler board. All of these things we wanted to uh, either resurrect or produce hardware kits for uh, the chat with the designer attendees. And again, just being totally honest, uh, time has not been... Uh, extremely cooperative, and of course the, the, the program itself kind of works against us in that regard. So we feel that dropping it back to a, an every other week kind of thing is going to help us uh, keep our sanity. 
uh, balance things out with our own workloads, but whether it's the day schedule or the uh, the ham radio at night schedule and the families and all that sort of stuff, and ultimately produce allow us to produce some better quality, um, uh, improved quality beyond what we have right now. I have a lot of good feedback from people about what we've been doing, and it's so appreciative, uh, so wonderful to hear that kind of feedback from you folks. That uh, and I really hope you keep it coming. Keep it coming from a standpoint of things that you'd like to hear more of, things that you'd want to hear less of. Uh, general style of, that we have here on Chat with the Designers is uh, kind of overview technical topics of current interest to ham radio people. And so we don't get down to the you know nth level of microamp and logic and equations for certain operations of circuits. But um, we don't stay at the top level either. We don't just kind of sit and wave our hands and jaw about different kinds of cool radios and things that we wish we could have or wanted ever to do but never got a chance to do it. This is a hands-on kind of program, and as a result, it sort of uh, requires us, Joe and myself and JJ as well, to kind of uh, you know do our homework. And we want to have enough time to do that homework to do a good job. So... Um, just wanted to kind of let you all know that. We'll put that notice on the web page, um, the Chat with the Designer group on Yahoo Groups. We'll put it on our whiteboard, on the homepage of the whiteboard. And, of course, now it's mentioned in the in the podcast. So uh, um, I hope that everybody can stay in sync with us. We're not going to have a session next week, but we're going to start into this process right now. And uh, we're actually going to start right away working on the session for two weeks from now. So two weeks from now, we will hopefully see all of you again. Email notices and discussions will go out uh, well in advance of the program, and we'll have a good chance to kind of make sure that you have every opportunity to know that we're going to be here. So thank you all once again from Joe and me. Uh, we appreciate you being here. We enjoy doing what we're doing because we like doing it, and we're going to be continuing to do it. And uh, we can only do it with your participation and involvement, and we thank you for that. So 73 all, good night from Chat with the Designers. We'll see you all in two weeks. Good night. Mm -hmm.